This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. So good to be together here with you. If you're new or visiting with us, we are in a series called Crossroads. I just was driving in this morning and just uh, so grateful, so thankful to be part of a community that would dig in, that you would come back each week as we're trying to learn uh, how our faith, the Christian faith, intersects and has a crossroads with all these other faith systems. And I got to tell you today, if, uh, if you like the bizarre, if you like kind of the unusual and the way out there, you, you pick the right Sunday to come to church. In fact, I'd been working all week with uh, kind of a, a different subtitle. I was trying to figure out how to weave in kind of this idea of what do UFOs and psychedelics and artificial intelligence all have in common? Well, it might have these worldviews, this worldview we're going to study today. Uh, we're taking a look at, at kind of everything that comes out of the Eastern philosophies, specifically Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, before I dive in, let me kind of just remind you why we're doing this. And I'll kind of do this through, well, a picture as well as a little bit of a story. If you've um, ever been on vacation uh, around the ocean, I got to ask you, have you, ever, have you ever seen one of these? A jellyfish. And if you've seen them, you probably haven't seen just one. You've probably seen lots of them. I've had the, the privilege of uh, doing two Ironmans in the Gulf of Mexico right off Panama City, and both times I've been down there racing and training, I've come across these large schools of jellyfish. And i got to tell you, when you're about a mile offshore, this is the most bizarre thing to see underwater. In fact, you'd be swimming along, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in fact, I remember one time reaching in and thinking I was just about to like put my hand right into the guts of a jellyfish, and you don't want to do that because uh, they will sting you. In fact, the races I do very often, people come out of the water. I've never been stung, but people will come out of the water with uh, stings on their face and on their hands and on their feet. It's just, it's just kind of annoying, to be honest with you. Now, I'll tell you, it's, it's much less terrifying than seeing a shark out in the ocean, but still, I, I don't really like to see these when I'm swimming. They're annoying. Um, they kind of just go wherever the current takes them. Uh, they're mindless creatures, God's creatures nonetheless, but they're, they're spineless. And the reason I bring them up this morning is, this is part of the reason we're doing this series, is the last thing I would want for you as a Christian to be a jellyfish Christian, or as one pastor calls them, uh, evangelifish, right? Like, that would not be a compliment to be that, to be just sort of, annoying, to kind of be mindless with your take on spirituality, to, to maybe even just sort of go and be swept by the currents of culture and, and to be spineless. In fact, the whole reason I've been wanting to dig into this series is to put spiritual, like steel in your spiritual spine and give you a way in which you can at least have uh, some knowledge about these other worldviews. Now, as, as I've said before, we, we don't want to go out and, and we don't want to be like tiger sharks. We're not, we're not looking for a fight, uh, but we also don't want to lose an argument about faith and why the Christian faith has the most to offer, the only truth to offer to our world. And so we want to be smart and we want to be confident. And I think especially when it comes to the topic today, while these Eastern religions may seem like they're sort of a world away, they really aren't. And 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us that uh, that we're called to always be prepared, uh, to be prepared to share the hope that we have and 
to do that with gentleness and respect. I think that these Eastern religions, if nothing else this morning, my prayer all this week is that your heart would be broken. Uh, because as we study these, they represent significant spiritual darkness uh, over billions of people in our world. So I want to do what I've kind of been doing in this series and, and follow the same pattern where I'll take about half this message uh, to explain to you the Eastern religions, primarily Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, this isn't a college lecture. I'm a Christian pastor. Uh, you didn't sign up for 14 weeks of worldview. I get about 30 minutes. So I'm going to give you the most I can in about half of the message. And then the second half of the message, I, I want to try to do the, the harder work of how do we engage? How, how do we have conversations with people of different faith systems, especially this one that is so different from Christianity? So let's dive in this morning and let's kind of define some terms. Uh, I'm trying to kind of raise the vocabulary here in our church, and the big word of the day, big $5 word, is the word pantheism. In fact, all of these Eastern religions would be what we call um, pantheism, pantheistic worldviews. Now, it's a big word. In fact, when you go to seminary, they teach you as a pastor, don't use big words in your congregation. I always felt like that was kind of insulting. Like, no, 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 my my people can get big words. So let me, let me tell you how you get this big word, pantheism. It's actually really easy. It's the root of two words. The word pan, which means all, and you probably guessed theism or theo, which means God. And so pantheism is the belief that God is in all, like God is in all things. And that's certainly the case with the largest of all the Eastern religions, which is Hinduism. Hinduism believes that there's almost an infinite number of gods. I read lots of different sources, and it's kind of, kind of just approaching absurdity as far as the numbers. 33 million gods recognized inside of Hinduism. And they all have kind of their different take on how this works. And so it's kind of maybe hard to get your head around not one religion, but all of these different schools of thought. So there's Hinduism and Buddhism, kind of a, a different organization of how the priesthood works. But then there's all these other like branches off, like Sikhism, which is a combination of Islam and Hinduism, uh, Confucianism, uh, Taoism, Shinto in Japan. Uh, kind of what you find here in the West, in the United States, would be uh, transcendental meditation. This would be where some of those psychedelics come into play and drugs. Uh, TM, we kind of call it for short in theology. And then uh, the Krishna movement, or if you're a little older like myself, you might remember, well, this is actually a little older than me, but like the late 60s, there was the Hari Krishnas. These were the um, shaved heads, robe-wearing, flower holding, peace-loving people, the Hare Krishnas, uh, kind of got their start off of Hinduism in the United States in New York in 1965. Again, we'll focus primarily on Hinduism and Buddhism, but they all sort of um, kind of stem from this religion. In fact, Hinduism is the oldest. Uh, it's 1,500 years uh, B.C. that it started. Um, in fact, a kind of a, a parallel with Christianity, uh, it's, it's safe to assume that when Jesus was born, and you remember he's visited by three wise men, three from the Orient, uh, very likely because of the age of Hinduism or the Eastern religions. Those wise men coming from the East were very likely um, Hindu or pantheistic in their worldview. And you can see they were searching for the truth. Sometimes people will say, well, Christianity has to go to the ends of the earth. And I think it's 
humbling to be reminded that sometimes the end of the earth comes searching and seeking for the truth that is only found in Jesus. Um, There are 1.1 billion Hindus worldwide. You can add to that another half a billion um, Buddhists. Again, this represents about the third largest religion in the world. Hinduism uniquely, uh, compared to all the other religions, has has no founder. There's there's no, like, named founder behind the religion. Um, They do have a very um, clear view on kind of where God, and when they say God, they mean kind of this energy source, this kind of source from which all the other gods flow from. And, And they call that source the Brahma. And it gets very technical, and so I want to read my notes here on this one, because they believe that the Brahma is this impersonal, ultimate, and unknowable spiritual reality. It's from this source from which all the other gods, 33 million gods, flow from. And with that, they also organize kind of these major gods that are important, uh, minor to the Brahma, but major in their view. And they kind of have three in particular. Uh, one One is called Shiva, Uh, That's the god of death, and so if you've lost a loved one, you would very commonly um, pray to, maybe have a shrine to the god Shiva. They have the god Krishna, that is, as I just mentioned, the god of love. And then this last one, you may not, you'll recognize it now that I tell you, uh, but if you've ever eaten at an Indian restaurant, you've probably seen uh, the god Ganesh. And the god Ganesh is the elephant. Uh, If you come into an Indian restaurant, very often you'll see an elephant or a shrine to the elephant. And that's the god of success and wealth. And so the owner of that restaurant is obviously, you know, seeking that god in the success and well-being of uh, of their restaurant. Um, They have uh, several sacred books because, again, pantheism, if God is in everything, God is in lots of sources of knowledge. So Christians, we have the Bible. If you are here last week, Islam has the Quran. Inside of Hinduism, it's, it's, very, um, it's very hard to figure out what the ultimate source of truth is. Uh, they have the Vedas. There's four Vedas. I, I've, re- I've tried to read them. I want to say I've read them, but they're, they're very, I think, coming from a Western mindset. They're very hard for me to understand. Uh, but they have other sources as well. They have the Puryanas, which is the, kind of the history of how the universe, how, kind of how the forces of nature work. And then they have the Upanishads. You may have heard of those. Those are kind of the philosophical writings inside of Hinduism. But let me give you the goal. The goal of Hinduism is, is essentially to keep the gods happy, um, to allow the gods to be happy so that, number two, the gods will, will bless you with good karma in this life. And keeping the gods happy is, is sort of the works-based religion. In fact, um, they don't typically have 33 million gods. They'll adopt one or two in their home. They'll have a shrine to that god. Um, they will uh, give chants and ohms from their sacred books. Uh, they will offer sacrifices, like cook a meal, leave the meal before the shrine to their god. And all in an effort to make that god happy. Again, very interesting. There's a, a huge sort of like integration now of artificial intelligence in the Hindu religion. In fact, um, some of the things I read this week were um, Hindus taking on kind of these AI chatbots in order to keep the gods happy while they were away at work. So a chatbot could be programmed to continue praying and chanting to the god in their home uh, while the Hindu was off to work. Again, just very different in the way in which it works. But 
Ultimately, what this religion is, is it's a religion that focuses around you, around the person of, of you. And it's very much a you-choose-your-own-course of spiritual spirituality. It's ultimately determined by the works that you do. It's a works-based religion. There is no concept of Satan or evil, the devil, nothing like that really uh, is a part of this religion. In fact, um, evil is essentially up to you. If, you. if you choose evil, if you do bad or stupid things, then you can expect to receive bad karma. And you don't want that. You want good karma because at the end of the life, at the end of this life, you are subject to reincarnation. And reincarnation is, of course, this idea that when you die, you're your soul mixes together with the, the cremated ashes and ascends up to the clouds. And, and then as the clouds gather and then as they rain and nourish the earth, uh, you are subject to the Brahma in determining whether your life is worthy of kind of being elevated in the next life or being downgraded. You could water the earth and you could become a bug or you could become a higher level of being. And when you listen to, especially Hinduism, but also Buddhism, when you listen to them talk, they, they speak as if they've lived thousands and thousands of these lives. And the goal then is to kind of es escape this recycling of your soul. Uh, in their mind, to kind of graduate would be to, to kind of not be recycled again and to reach the state of nirvana. That's the ultimate goal of salvation in their minds. And really what it is, is it goes from existing in this life to, to ceasing to exist. You become one with the created order. You essentially, uh, many of the writings will talk about how you, you slip into the nothingness of the Brahma. And it's very, again, very different because it raises the issue of purpose, I mean, what is the purpose then of life if all you can hope for is to exist enough to then cease to exist? And I, I've listened to interviews and discussions, and especially um, with younger Buddhists, and it's very, very difficult to hear them answer this because they don't really have an answer. It's, it's sort of this pressing of, well, why exist? Why, why ever go above a certain level, right? I mean, if you're a millionaire with... Uh, a mansion, why would you ever want to go above that? Why would you ever want to escape it? It seemed like you'd want to do just enough of the good things in order to stay in that recycling process. If you cease to exist, you've given up, essentially, all that you've worked for. And this becomes kind of the challenge, where this constant idea of escaping and escaping and escaping is unattainable. In fact, especially if you're not at the top, but if you're at the lower end of this cycle, where life is a struggle and life is hard, and this is where they will talk not just about psychedelics, but about yoga and meditation as forms to kind of escape the challenges of this life. But I don't know about you, I've, I've done yoga, I've done, you know, Christian meditation, I've done breath work, and anytime I've done something like that, uh, the, the problems are still there. I mean, the reality of having a God that walks with me, comforts me, and comes alongside of me is there as well, but this life is meant to be a struggle. 
In fact, you can hear in their writing, especially in uh, their, greatest, uh, their greatest follower, which is the Mahatma Gandhi, how much of a struggle this was for him to never really escape the struggle and the suffering. In fact, this quote is, I think, so helpful in understanding their view. Gandhi said that it is a constant source of sorrow for me that I am so far separated from the one whom I know to be my very life. It is my wretchedness and sin that separates me from him. Do you hear his problem? His problem is one of his own creating. He's saying, I know that there's a God out there, and I'm separated from him. It brings me great sorrow to be separated from this one, and I've determined the problem. The problem is me. It's my wretchedness and my sin. Now, I'm asking you, in a Christian church this morning, does this sound vaguely familiar? I mean, does this sound like something that Christians, we have the answer to? I mean, that we have something we can actually speak into this. No, no, no. We know a guy, right? We know a guy that came to be this gap between the love of God and the sinfulness of humanity. And we have so much that we can share, so much hope that we can share into this very dark, spiritually oppressed world. In fact, take the words of Gandhi and compare them to the words of Jesus. This is after Jesus has just told his disciples, hey team, I'm ascending to heaven. I want you to go and to make disciples. As you go about your work, make disciples. Share this love and this ability to be reconnected with your heavenly father. Share it with everyone. And then he gives these words of just great promise. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This comfort of this life having purpose and meaning. Now, I want to bring you out of the Orient, and I want to bring you out of the ancient times, and and kind of show you maybe how some of this plays out uh, in the United States and our world today in kind of a a modern view um, that sort of gets kind of added to it. In fact, I, I could have picked any number of people who have been on record of giving quotes about their faith, but I, I chose three this morning. And the first we'll start with is, is we'll start with Cheryl Crow. And I think she represents um, a very interesting worldview that has some Hinduism in it. She says, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and Buddha, and Muhammad, and all of those that were enlightened. I wouldn't necessarily say that I am a strict Christian. You think? You know? I'm not picking on Cheryl Crow here, but I think she represents what we see so often in our day of this searching, this longing, this, this trying to find her way. And you would actually, um, actually kind of call this uh, a syncretism because what she's doing is she's syncing up what she's heard maybe about the Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad, and she's trying to make them all congruent, all kind of on the same level playing field. I'll give you another one, uh, another actress. This represents similar but different view, and it's uh, Holly Berry. Um, she has, I think, a fascinating and profound quote. She says, I believe in God. I just don't know if that God is Jehovah, Buddha, or Allah. And I want to read this with a sense of sincerity in her voice because I think this, again, is the, the soul longing, searching, maybe even coming from the East, trying to find the truth that is available in only Jesus Christ. And this looks a little different because she's admitting, I don't know. 
And we would call this today kind of a, a pluralism, right? It's almost as if she's kind of borrowing whatever, whatever in the moment might work and might help. And maybe it helps to kind of imagine if you were to go through a buffet line and you see all those items on the buffet and you think, well, they're all tasty, right? I'll just, you know, if, if this is good, I'll have a little bit of that. Jesus, I'll have a little scoop of that and a, a little scoop of transcendental meditation and a little scoop of this until you really have just this mix. You don't have any pure faith in tradition. It shows, again, the hope that is needed. Last illustration, and this one, um, this one is actually a very outspoken Hindu, and if you follow politics, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was also in the news this week. Um, he was part of the Republican Party seeking, uh, he was seeking uh, the presidential nomination, and he kind of got chewed up and spit out by the Trump machine, and so he stepped down. Um, I'm laughing because he was in the news this week, and I, I would so love to go off on a tangent, but uh, he was on the news this week of being critical of the NFL for rigging the Super Bowl, of saying that, uh, he, that the Chiefs and Ravens game last week was rigged so that the Chiefs could win, so that Taylor Swift could have a larger platform to endorse Joe Biden. I think I'm going to leave this all right there as uh, I am not wanting to engage in kind of the pop culture scene and the incredible monster of conspiracy theories. But he's an outspoken Hindu, and you can see again um, this idea that Jesus, this is a quote, Jesus is a son of God and not the son of God. So you see this pantheism kind of weaving its thread through everything. It's not just over in the east somewhere. In fact, the the wrong view of Hindus and Buddhists is to think that they're just living in Nepal as Sherpas. That is not at all the characterization. In fact, um, Hindus today are very well-educated. They tend to be very conservative, and they're very uh, technologically driven. Um, But you see this pantheism kind of making its way into everything. And this kind of makes it a challenge for us when we start to begin to think, well, how do we engage with someone who is clearly so far different in their views of the Savior, Jesus, or their view of God, or their view of scriptures? I mean, if you could think of a religion system that is more different than Christianity, I can't think of one. I mean, there's almost, when it comes to our view of God, there is almost nothing that we share in common. So how do we engage? Well, one of the things I've learned is when God is far apart from someone, you can always go back to what makes us similar as humans. I mean, what's our commonality as people, as human beings, right? I mean, you know the saying that, you know, everybody's the same. Everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time, right? Well, the same is true when it comes to faith, and not only the fact that we're human beings, but as humanity, we have lots of problems. And the Hindus don't have it figured out any more than the rest of us. We have these issues. So I believe that there are two human problems that can be sort of starting points or conversation um, elements when it comes to engaging with people of Eastern worldviews. I'm going to give them to you this morning. Uh, There are many problems we have as humanity, but the two I want to talk about today are, first of all, starting with this view that our problem is uh, idolatry. In fact, you don't have to have 33 million gods to have an idol. In fact, you heard in the uh, celebrity realm, you know, they have three gods, and those are idols. 
And the reality is, if you're a Christian, you can have lots of idols. An idol is anything that you put between you and God. It could be your hobby. It could be your bank account. It could be your desire for more. I mean, consumerism is a, is a hard God to satisfy, right? I mean, that idol will keep coming at you. It can be your addictions. It can be your appearance. And this is the problem that we all have. And God knew. God knew from the very beginning that our hearts would always be pulled away from him. In fact, when God first started to talk about this, it was because he had to keep rescuing us from our idols and root us out of the gods that we want to place between us and him. And so God gave a very clear command. I know these are not popular today, but God gave these 10 commandments, these ways in which you can orient your life. And while they may take them out of schools and public places, uh, the Ten Commandments are the most wise way you could ever live. In fact, I want to take you there this morning with just the first two of the Ten Commandments. You can go back to Exodus 20 and read all ten of them. But I think the first two are just enough this morning. Moses, writing for God, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, God's people ended up in slavery and our God is the only God that, that cares enough to rescue us, to take us out of a polytheistic, pagan world like Egypt was. And God says, if I'm going to lead you and I'm going to be your God, then I have a few things that will, that will be necessary. And he gives them these commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Not even one other God? No, not one. Well, can I have a graven image of a God? No, not one. In fact, commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Can't have anything. God says, just me and me alone will be enough. And of course, the Israelites, no different than you and I, when they hear these words, uh, no sooner and before Moses can even come down the mountain with the 10 tablets, what do they do? They get together a collection of gold jewelry. They go to the priest Aaron, and they say, hey, can you melt this down into a calf for us, right? I mean, this is the human condition. John Kelvin, great theologian, uh, says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're always looking to get something, to create something, to make something in the place of God. So I want to give you a, a practice. Actually, I kind of hope this becomes sort of a, a part of your devotional habit. Maybe if you have a time in the morning or a time at night where you read the word or you pray, I would hope you would just add this little practice to your day. And it's just kind of a question that you can go on and on just between you and God with. And it's the very difficult question of asking yourself, what are my idols? And sure, maybe you read some scripture and you begin to pray, but you, you have this question that you have to deal with with God. And I just kind of... Um, in my quiet time, uh, a lot of the times I just, I kind of practice just with my hands open, kind of just, you know, sitting on my lap, and I just think about this. God, what have I, what have I picked up? What idols, what, what issues of pride do I have that I've kind of picked up? I, I, what are my issues of wanting to be liked? Why have I picked that up and made that so important? And I just open my hands, and I just spend some time saying, God, I need you to take this from me. Again, and just kind of giving over to God, whatever idol it is that you've picked up, and you just kind of release that, and you give that back to him. It's just a, a great way to kind of practice spending time with God and recentering on him as your one God. The second problem we have is not just idolatry, 
but we have the problem of autonomy. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, where Eve is deceived by this fruit so that she could be like God. See, we don't just make idols in place of God, but ultimately, we want to be God. We want to be autonomous. We want to call our own shots. And if in the Hindu and Buddhist mindset, if that looks like like self-actualization, if that looks like becoming one with the universe, one with the gods, we very often are no different. We want to become like a god, you know, in power, in theory. In fact, I jokingly said, you know, what's our fascination with UFOs and artificial intelligence and psychedelics? And, and you know, all of these, I think, have this thread of pantheism in our day today. In fact, I think some of the fascination with UFOs is just you know, just kind of us kind of gut-checking the universe, right? Like, we, we want to be in control, and we're threatened by, is there something else out there? If I don't believe in God, well, is there something else out there that might take away my autonomy? Or you take artificial intelligence, that's the, that's the ultimate threat against autonomy, autonomy, right? I mean, like, like, will the machines actually eclipse us? kind of nearing this point they talk about, this point of singularity where machine intelligence kind of rises above, eclipses human intelligence. And so you see this all the time now, kind of this race to harness and understand, like, can we control the artificial intelligence? Again, what is that? That's autonomy. That's pantheism. That's this form of God that we're trying to understand. And the answer to all of these questions and any question you could come up with, the answer is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus And the answer is only Jesus. We have one true God who loves you and pursues you and wants nothing more for you to cross this gap, this separation with your heavenly Father. I want to lead us into a time of communion this morning, and the worship team are going to come up in just a moment. But I want to share with you one verse that uh, was just profound in my quiet time this week. And I, I think it not only sums up these Eastern religions, but it also gives us an opportunity to understand what God is doing right here, right now at 9.51 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And this verse, I'll tell you, it kind of snuck up on me. I I was reading for some other stuff, and I came across this verse, and it, it just hit me in such a unique way. It's Romans 8, verse 34. And it talks about what we're about to experience in this moment of communion. That in communion, we're saying that Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This verse is beautiful. It tells us exactly what we're going to do in communion, that we're celebrating and remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He, he died, and more than that, he was raised to life. He conquered death and sin and the devil himself, and he is sitting at the right hand of God. But the profound part about this, and it just blew me away this week, is to think about this last phrase, that Jesus is also interceding for us. Don't let that word interceding throw you. That means praying. And we have a God, we have a Savior Jesus, who is praying right now for you by name. He's sitting next to the Father, and he's interceding on your behalf. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is praying for you. And he's probably praying for you way more than you've been praying to him. And that is the love of the Savior Jesus that came to live and to die. What other religion 
offers you that salvation and care of your personal well-being and your soul in a way in which Jesus does. I, I think that just warrants this time of celebration. So I'm going to invite Eli and the team to come out. And, and I just tell you this morning, we have such an opportunity because one billion people in the world just trapped in idolatry and autonomy. And we have the love of Jesus that we can share with others. That's my hope for our community and for what we do as a church. As we head into a time of communion, if you've never celebrated communion with us, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a regular attender. But you do have to received, have to have received Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. And if you have, then you are welcome to join us. There are two tables set up at the front of the room and two at the back of the room. As you come to the table, you will find on them the communion elements, the bread, which represents the body of Jesus that was broken, and the juice, which represents his blood that was poured out in the forgiveness and the redemption for every single person. And what I would like you to do this morning is after I pray, just to spend a few moments having a conversation with God, maybe beginning to kind of work on rooting out the idols in your life. And then you may come to the tables, take the elements, bring them back to your seat. And after you've finished taking the elements to join, to stand and join us in worship. If you would bow your head and pray with me, please. God, I thank you for the beautiful message of the gospel and the grace that only Jesus offers. I pray, God, that we would not just know this message and, and hold on to this grace, but that it would spill out of our lives into every single person we meet. And God, I do pray that we would have conversations that are trapped and locked in darkness and that the freedom would be the words in the name of Jesus over their life. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this system where we can rest on what you have done, the perfect work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. There's nothing we can do to earn that, God. May we share that message with the world around us. We love you and we worship you now. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.